shame on the IOC. They've chosen to host you know, these genocide games in Beijing. We are not uh, commenting on political issues. How does money play into all this? Our policy with China for the last 20 plus years has been to reward bad behavior. Today I sit down with Andrew Bremberg, president of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. How much is your moral integrity worth? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Ambassador Andrew Bremberg, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks so much for having me. So Ambassador Bremberg, I, we were just at the No Beijing 2022 uh, rally uh, in front of the U.S. Capitol. I still can't believe at this moment that Beijing is having the Olympic Games in 2022 after their you know, supposed you know, human rights coming out in 2008 was supposed to solve everything. We saw it went exactly the other direction, and the IOC rewarded them a second time. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly uh, distressing for those of us that care about you know, human rights and human dignity and, and, and care about the Olympics. Uh, to see the organization allow itself to be used yet again as a vehicle for the CCP's propaganda. I mean, this is what we saw that happened in 2008, both from a domestic and an international perspective, as you said. But to see it happening now where, you know, we're, we're no longer in a um, media climate circa 2008. Um, the leadership under, under Xi Jinping has been very clear and very brutal. The, this kind of veneer of reform that, that was present before is gone. Um, we, the, under his leadership, the Chinese Communist Party has uh, reached back to its very totalitarian Maoist roots. Um, and that's why we've seen both the genocide happening in Xinjiang for the Uyghurs and other Turkish you know, minorities and Muslims in Western China, and the, you know, um, the implementation of the national security law in Hong Kong. I mean, th these are very recent, real, you know, very obvious changes that no one can be in doubt about. Um, and to see the Olympics go forward is just very, very concerning. Also, the question on everybody's mind, I mean, is how is this possible? Why? Do you have any thoughts on this? I think it's a failure of leadership, a failure of leadership at multiple levels. I mean, most specifically at the IOC. I mean, they have the, the moral responsibility to, ex to exercise better judgment and to show leadership when faced with you know, these grotesque human rights violations happening, they should have stepped forward and, you know, um, done something, you know, sought help by other by uh, other member states to help advise them about how they could delay or move or change the venue for Beijing. And there, there are lots of roads they could have gone down. But then, separate from the IOC, it's a failure of leadership of, mo of much of the world, of the, of the entire international community. You know, the United States, um, our partners in Europe and around the world. You know, freedom and um, democratic governments could have taken much stronger hands in pressuring the IOC to do the right thing. And that didn't happen. So that's how we've landed up and been, become where we are today. What does the IOC get out of hosting the Olympics in Beijing? Honestly, I don't know. I think it's going to end up being much worse for them than, than not having hosted the games there or even having moved them out of there. I think this is going to be terribly damaging to the you know, brand of the IOC, to the idea that this is an organization that, it, that in its charter isn't just about sports. It talks about humanism and solidarity as being foundational, you know, human rights elements to, to what undergirds the IOC ethos. And 
no one can think that they actually take that seriously today. Now that they've chosen to host you know, these genocide games in Beijing, um, it's going to be deeply damaging to their you know, image around the world. I just want to comment on this. You know, is, is there any bigger or more stark red line than genocide? No, I, I, I certainly don't think so. Maybe war, outright you know, war or invasion of another country, but it, it, it's hard to imagine you know, any kind of worse, as you said, red line. What else does a country need to do uh, in terms of terrible you know, human rights abuses and bad, you know, bad behavior to merit a response from international organizations like the IOC? And so, you know, when I think of incentives, I always think of money. It's often often involved. Um, you know, you actually are have a report out recently that's talking about um, corporate involvement in China, right? I've certainly read quite a bit about how much money is involved for the IOC and and you know related organizations, all these sponsors. Um, so, how, how does money play into all this? You know, um, when, when it comes to the IOC, I don't know. Um, ha having just returned in the last year to the United States after serving as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in Geneva, I had the opportunity to, to see firsthand how both the IOC and other international organizations work or try to address themselves in the context of the challenge of China. And quite honestly, the most basic assumption I've made is that it's really just a lack of moral courage and lack of moral leadership. Not that there aren't scenarios where there could be financial inducements or things, I, I believe them, but it's easy just to, for me to have seen firsthand, it's just a lack of moral courage. It's you know, individual people that have no moral fortitude or, and, and are just un, either afraid or unwilling to, to take a stand in doing the right thing. I, I've, I've seen that time and time again. Um, so while of course there could be uh, you know, financial aspects, and of course the IOC had lots of, you know, I'm sure, sunk cost into putting on the, the, the games in Beijing. But I mean, you know, how much is your moral integrity worth? I mean, what, what, how, how much is it w worth to you to maintain the idea that your organization actually stands for solidarity if, if you claim it? I mean, you can't put a price tag on that. And so on the corporate side now, there's huge amounts of money involved, very transparently involved, both for actually broadcasting the, the games and also for you know, all sorts of sponsorships. And you actually, in your new role with the Victims of Communism, um, you've now published this, this report related to this. T tell me about that. So just today, we've re released our new Corporate com Complicity Scorecard, which is a new first-of-its-kind report where we looked at eight major U.S. corporations and examined their business activities in China. The fact that someone is doing business in China is not necessarily a, a, a problem. But we think looking at what are clearly the most troubling aspects of China's human rights violations today, you know, its use of forced labor in the genocide in Xinjiang of, of Uyghurs and other minorities, the aggressive development of you know, AI and surveillance tools used to surveil and you know, clamp down on Chinese people across the entire country, like, like has never been done before, the most kind of you know, Orwellian surveillance state being developed today. And the militarization, you know, you know, direct connections to military activities done by the PLA, we thought these are very clear or should be red lines that you know, no U.S. company would ever want to cross or be engaged in those activities. 
And I really encourage individuals to check out our website, victimsofcommunism.org, where you can find this new report or follow us on Twitter at VO Communism. But we think it's a really important first step. You know, unfortunately, there are thousands of companies that do business in China. We've looked at these first eight, mostly large major US tech companies. Um, but we want to look at companies across the different industries to see what type of exposure they have to these really you know, troubling areas of you know, the Chinese Communist Party's worst activities. So what gets you enough? Well, we, we looked at um, whether or not they had been had any direct involvement with uh, forced labor or operations in Xinjiang. And that was a kind of red line. You'd automatically get an F. And then the other um, elements were you know, additive. We, we, look, we looked at multiple ele elements in each category. And if you had you know, no good areas where, where you had no activity or had too many areas where there was troubling activity, that was added up in our report that lowered a, a company's score. And unfortunately, we had so many companies that, that failed. Really, our hope is that this will be the beginning of a process where companies will actually evaluate themselves and change their behavior. That's really the, the ideal goal, so that the companies we examined, plus all the companies we haven't examined yet, will look at these criteria and say, we're going to change our practices, change our activities to avoid these troubling areas. But if they don't, the real opportunity I, I see then is it's got to come to Congress and our policymakers to force that change. We, we just saw at the end of 2021 the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that puts in place a prohibition on, the, on any importations of products made um, by uh, forced labor or any connection to forced labor through Xinjiang throughout China. That's an important first step. That was critical. But I think we need to see Congress take more action to make clear to companies that you know, direct involvement in the surveillance state of China is, going to be, is not going to be allowed, or direct involvement with militarization by the PLA with China can't be allowed. So I think we need to see more actions taken to make clear that if companies aren't going to voluntarily choose you know, to do the right thing, that our government is going to force them. You know, something, something comes to mind uh, that you said in your, in your speech at this event, um, where you said that you know, the goal of using the Olympics, or ostensibly this is what we were told, knowing the China realities, is that we will change China. Right, the IOC or the or the international community, the the, the West liberal democracies will change China in a posi in the positive direction, but it's I think you said that it happened actually in the opposite in exactly the opposite. So tell, what did you mean by that? There's, that's a big statement to make. It is, and I just I just step back. You know, looking back over the last thirty to forty years, was this large hope you know in the United States and across most of the West that through economic integration and economic liberalization with China we'd see political liberalization and China move on that arc towards being a more you know, liberal democracy, a country that actually valued and supported and protected human rights. That was the hope. But what we've seen is that too much of that interaction was through our companies, through these international organizations that are all very weak in, in a larger political sense. You know, the United States is an incredibly strong and powerful country. China is an incredibly strong and powerful country. The IOC is not a strong entity, nor are these individual businesses. So what happened is we thought that through these modes of engagement 
the kind of underlying Western values that undergird all those organizations would you know, help kind of permeate into China and help, help change China through that engagement. But because these organizations aren't actually that strong, what happened, and, and the CCP was very committed to their ideology and their way of um, governing themselves and, and how they felt um, their worldview should dominate. They used those connections to push their views of censorship and not caring about human rights back out through those very channels where instead of, you know, whether it's the IOC, some of the UN bodies, or our own companies, where they now become almost mouthpieces at times or, or you know, passive observers and basically neutered as any type of critic of what you would normally expect these individuals or companies to condemn all sorts of you know, terrible human behavior. We've talked about before, you know, so many of us care deeply about social justice issues around the world. And how is it that these companies and these international organizations have become truly silent in the face of the worst human rights abuses happening on the planet today? Well, you know, ostensibly because there's a cost to being vocal, right. as we've seen. That's right. So is this, so, you know, tell me how this plays in to the, to the picture. Well, look, we, we've seen China has been, you know, as I said, they're a strong actor and they've chosen many times how they've strategically engaged. And one of their key strategies has been anytime anyone kind of deviates or get out of line, there's consequences, right? That if your company or this international organization starts to poke around the wrong way or starts to say things, there's going to be consequences, whether it's, you know, financial or diplomatic or kind of political or access, you know, it's not war, but, there, but there's consequences. They always ensure there's a cost. And we've never done the same. Most of U.S. policy for the last 30 years has been to never kind of make there be consequences, just any type of consequences to bad behavior by China. I've, I've frequently said, you know, when it comes to a basic rule of foreign policy should be never reward bad behavior. And it seems to me that's been one of the almost the central tenets of our policy with China for the last 20 plus years has been to reward bad behavior off of this kind of false hope that as long as we remain kind of in dialogue and talking and in, uh, further integrating economic ties, well, eventually they're gonna come along. And what, I've seen, what I think we've seen now is that it's mostly been the opposite. So it's basically rewarding by not actually calling things out when you see right. it. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, we, we should be calling things out or at the very least, you know, when, when they, you know, I, I had an opportunity to observe, you know, China in the international sphere working in the UN. And it was very interesting to see how um, they would try to use the, the idea of, you know, keeping things neutral um, or not being, they would say, kind of like a policy aggressor, aggressor or changing the status quo, where they change the status quo all the time. Every time they fail to live up to their international commitment, which they've made. No one forced China to make many of their international commitments, whether it's you know, their, their commitments to human rights, their commitments to, you know, to the UK as part of the Hong Kong handover in the 1990s. These are freely chosen decisions and commitments made by the Chinese Communist Party. And every time they fail to live up to them, they're the ones that have changed things. And what they're doing is they're saying to us, oh yes, we agree and believe in these things. But their actions you know, show that, that that's a lie or not true. 
And that becomes the moment where do we then respond in some way to show, no, that's not acceptable. There have to be some sort of consequences, or do we let it go? And that's what I said earlier, where I fear, unfortunately, most of US policy vis-a-vis -vis China for many of the last you know, 20, 25 years has mostly been the latter, where we've kind of turned a blind eye and you know, it can't help but reinforce to the Chinese Communist Party that, well, clearly these countries don't actually care about these things, because if they did, they would have you know, responded in some way. So it's, it's, it's a deeply troubling pattern that has been very difficult, um, I think, for the United States and particularly for our companies to figure out how to get out of. But I think the urgency is so you know, present and clear to everyone today that we have to now start changing how we act. Two, two thoughts immediately. One is there was a Silicon Valley billionaire, who I, I don't want to, to, to mispronounce his name, but he talked about um, basically how, you know, this is not high on my priority list. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how often that's the case. Yeah, I, I thought it was an incredible, I actually thought it was an incredibly helpful moment because it was true. It was, it was, you know, he said the quiet part out loud, right? It was true, and that is true for most business leaders and most political leaders in the United States. Now, it's, it's wrong, and it's a shame, but it's true. You know, if, if it was, and I forget his language, you know, above the line, or whatever, that, that, if it was relevant to people, do you think these companies would be the, you know, the lead sponsors of the Olympic Games in Beijing right now? Of course not. If the, if the people at those companies actually cared about you know, what's happening, you know, specific, specifically addressing the issue of the genocide of, of Uyghurs, um, of course they, they, they never would have been sponsors. So it, I think it was, I hope for our country larger, like more broadly, this can be a teachable moment where we can see someone say this and say like, they actually told a very you know, sad truth that that's true for most people. So what are, what are you doing? What is anyone doing in their life today to show, you know, to, to disprove him, to make him you know, wrong? Because if we don't, then he was just right, that it doesn't actually matter to people. And that's you know, extremely you know, disappointing to even think that, that could be possible. Just the, the idea of the genocide convention you know, in 1945 was simply, you know, if we let this happen, you know, it's going to come to your doorstep too. I mean, that, that's how I read it anyway, right? Well, and also the, the whole pre premise of never again, right? That never again will countries stand by and let other countries commit genocide. I mean, that's part of also one of the, the undergirding, um, you know, moral impulses of the, whole, of the whole concept of the convention. Well, I want to talk about the UN yes. a little bit more, but, but before, I, before we go there, you... At the, at the rally, I'm not sure if it's you that mentioned it, but there's a few countries, including the U.S., that are doing a diplomatic boycott. You know, so that, that's certainly something. It's not nothing. And so just what are your thoughts about diplomatic boycott? I think that was incredibly important that the U.S. did that and that a handful of other countries did as well. But if you just look across you know, democratic countries around the world, most did nothing. You know, with the... With the incredible genocide happening to Uyghurs and Muslim minorities in Western China. Not a single Muslim-majority country has a diplomatic boycott or has said anything. And that is shameful. And I hope indiv individuals and leaders in those countries um, 
realize what, how, how their silence in the face of such kind of evil and genocide is, I, I find, damning. And they should be ashamed of themselves. So I think it's incredibly important that the U.S. did do that. However, I think it's been necessary, but so far insufficient. And the U.S. needs to do more. What I'd really like to see, I'd love to see the President of the United States talk sometime in the next three weeks. You know, Americans are going to be paying attention to the Olympics and talking about the Olympics. Many don't know that there is a diplomatic boycott by the U.S. So tell the American people that there is a diplomatic boycott for the Olympics. And then I'd love to hear him tell directly to the American people why. The American people don't know. We need our leaders, you know, starting from the president on down, all of our political leaders, to tell the American people why is there a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics? What is happening in China today? You know, they're going to see whatever version of the propaganda that the CCP wants to put out um, that unfortunately our own broadcasters are going to be complicit in. Um, but it is an opportunity for our leaders to say, well, you may be seeing or hearing this propaganda, but we're going to tell you the truth of what's really happening in China today, you know, specifically about the genocide happening in Western China, but also talk about the other persecutions, the persecution of Christians across the entire country, the, the ongoing you know, the crushing of democratic self-governance in Hong Kong today, the threats to Taiwan, um, and, and, and the persecution of other minorities. I mean, the, the ongoing decades-long running persecution of those in Tibet, in southwestern China, or the, uh, the, the, uh, those uh, Mongols in, other part, in, in Inner Mongolia parts of China. I mean, we are seeing a deeply oppressive, tyrannical regime in the Chinese Communist Party. And this is, you know, that's why it's both a shame that we have them hosting the Olympics, but we can use it as an opportunity to defeat their propaganda by using this as an actually incredibly educational moment where Americans you know, are no longer blind to the facts of what's happening. If we come out of this in March with you know, an American population much more aware of what's happening, that's a way for us to turn this into a defeat for the Chinese Communist Party. But it takes real leadership to do that. What do you make of one of the sort of activist actions suggested at the event was to just have people not watch the games. I think there's there's a hashtag with it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I certainly encourage people not, not to watch the games. I, I won't be uh, watching the games. Um, and, I, and I really hope that you know, this is you know, the, the least watch uh, Olympics, because I think that will start to send a message. Um, but, but I recognize people are still going to do so. And so I think it's important that we find a way, you know, whether it's you know, athletes or other corporate sponsors, to, you know, speak up, and, and particularly our government leaders. I mean, it's their job. You know, it's not the job of an athlete to be you know, a political activist or to you know, condemn what's happening in China. I mean, I have deep sympathy for every athlete that, that is forced you know, to, you know, to, to, to stand in Beijing and to compete in the Olympics and be put in this situation. I mean, shame on the IOC. They never should have been put in this situation. The IOC did this to the athletes. But it is the job and responsibility of our government leaders to address these issues. And that's where I really hope we see very clear uh, messages from our national leaders about what is happening in China today, why it is wrong, and why we have a diplomatic boycott, and why that's so important. And frankly, then, what else are we going to do as the United States, as, as the leader of the free world, to address these very real challenges posed by the Chinese Communist Party? 
So I, I've spoken with people um, about this idea of athletes doing some kind of action, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, those same people uh, that might have considered this uh, are also thinking to themselves, but what will China do? Because we've seen over the last few years what can happen when you, you know, for example, hold a very a powerful person in jail in Canada, or mm -hmm. house, pardon me, jail, house arrest, comfortable mm -hmm. house arrest in, in Canada, or, um, you know, there, there's multiple examples of how the CCP seemingly, without, you know, awareness of what's happening in, in internationally, just kind of takes, takes very severe action against people. It doesn't matter if they're from Canada, from the U.S., right. from wherever. No, I, I agree, which is why what I said is, I, I mean, I hold the IOC responsible for the safety of every athlete in, in Beijing. I mean, China's responsible, but I don't, I don't believe they'll have, uh, they will protect the safety of every athlete necessarily in, in Beijing. I hold the IOC responsible for that. Um, you know, I would have great admiration for any actions by incredible athletes there at the Olympics, but um, they will be making tough decisions and putting themselves at risk. Um, and they never should have been put in that position. And it's a real failure by the IOC and the international community and member and countries to have put them in that position where they now have to face this moral struggle of how do I use this platform or not use this platform when I, if I'm aware of what's actually happening here in China, I'm now you know, on a podium or I'm now center stage here and feel the moral compulsion that I should say or do something, recognizing that um, it could come as a huge cost to me. You know, this, these games aren't happening in the United States or some other country where people are free to express themselves with no consequences, right? So, I mean, any athletes that do do anything, I mean, I have nothing but the deepest respect for. I mean, that, that, that's, that takes, you know, an act of heroic courage to do that. So, I, we'll see. Well, and there's this whole element. So we, there are credible reports that this app that every athlete has to download onto their phone, right, right is essentially a creates this sort of deep, deep level of surveillance that, that we're familiar with from reports from Xinjiang and, frankly, other smart cities in China and yes. so forth. No, I mean, this, we, we will see this firsthand, and I hope our athletes talk about it when they leave China and return to the United States uh, and, and talk about those experiences. I mean, this is the exact type of um, you know, deeply disturbing uh, surveillance activities that we think no U.S. companies should have any part in. I mean, it's listening, apparently listening to you all the time, recording everything. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with the, with the details of, what, of, of how they've, uh, all the problems with that app. Yeah. I mean, perhaps no one is yet. We, we may learn more about it you know, through the course of the Olympics. Um, but th this is, you know, again, another example of what's just truly troubling. And again, that the IOC would allow this to go forward and not stand up for the athletes, and that's, that's their responsibility. Well, so let's let's jump to international organizations. Let's talk about the UN. You know, for starters, you, I, I mean, victims of communism uh, running this organization, that, that's a new hat for you. And so yes. how, how is it that you kind of ended up here? It's maybe perhaps an unexpected route. Yes, it right? has been. Um, yeah, I, I spent most of my career in public service working on domestic regulatory issues. Um, and when I had the opportunity to serve as ambassador to the UN in Geneva, um, it was an incredibly eye-opening experience um, about the threat and challenge posed by the Chinese Communist Party today. So when I left government service, I was thrilled 
uh, to take on the honor of being the new president of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Because um, leaving that experience, I, I knew that I wanted to dedicate myself to helping educate people about the challenge that the Chinese Communist Party and communism more broadly poses to the United States and to the world today. Well, you know, and we've, we've, we've talked about some elements of this, but why don't you just tell me, what is it that you learned exactly there, right? What is, because, I mean, that, again, big shift, right? To Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've, I've said to a number of folks that, um, that they would ask me a similar question that, you know, part of it, of course, was learning more directly about, you know, the role and the activities of, you know, China in the, in the multilateral space and seeing that firsthand what they're trying to do. But frankly, a bigger part of it was seeing how so many other countries were basically passive or not reacting. So it was more other countries' behavior than China's behavior that I found the most concerning. Um, you know, I'd expected that you know, the Chinese Communist Party would act in its interests. It has a very different, you know, very different fundamental view of human rights than I do. I knew that going in. So I, I, I expect them to act that way. Um, I did not expect to see such passivity and weakness across you know, the multilateral system that the United States built, right? I mean, the United States and our partners and allies built the UN, the multilateral system, you know, over decades, you know, after World War II. And to see that whole system and so many member states, you know, individual countries that are our partners and allies that, you know, care about democracy, to basically take very passive roles in trying to defend that system was deeply concerning, very eye-opening. You know, I, I'll mention one example that, that relates to, to today and, and the rally today. I had the opportunity to work with the, off, the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, Michelle Bachelet. Let me stop and pause and say, why does this office exist? Well, in the UN Charter, um, in the UN system, we have put human rights as a founding issue, that we believe human rights is important. So. Why would we even need an office? Because every country signed on to this. We've said human rights is important. This office exists because of a very important reason and a good insight into you know, I think human nature and, and, and problems with you know, every country. That while we all profess to put human rights first, we're always going to fall short. The way countries deal with one another is very multifaceted. You've got political issues, economic issues, security issues. So we recognize that even though we do believe in human rights first and we care about this, we know ourselves well enough to know there's going to be times when we fail to put human rights first. So to address that, we're going to create a special independent office in the UN, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, whose sole job is to examine and advocate on human rights issues, who is free from all of those other kind of political considerations that could cause a country to you know, you know, ignore a human rights issue for now in, in, in any scenario to be that human rights advocate and to be in, in, in this situation where this office, the current high commissioner, has utterly failed in doing their job was just incredibly disappointing to see. This office, which has done great work through, throughout, you know, throughout its history, you know, it works with dozens of what are called special rapporteurs that do incredible examinations on different issues. This office has been doing an in-depth investigation and um, taking witness testimony on the genocide in Xinjiang, the genocide of Uyghurs. And what we have seen in public reports is that the report that this office has prepared has been done for a very long time. 
and that the high commissioner of the office, the person leading this office themselves, she has blocked the release of this report so that it won't interfere with the propaganda effort that the Chinese Communist Party is going to engage in during their Olympic Games. And that is unconscionable, doesn't even begin to tell the story. But your job is to promote and advocate for human rights. Your own office has produced a report detailing, you know, from their perspective, evidence of what is happening in Xinjiang as it relates to the Uyghur genocide. And to hold that report to, to help protect a brutal regime from you know, public accountability. Remember, this office has no power, right? They have no power. All they do is speak, the, well, all they're even supposed to do is to speak the truth. Do these reports and provide transparency and speak the truth. And it's up to you know, countries or you know, governments and you know, even you know, companies to decide what action they'll take. But just to not even do the most basic job of you know, providing transparency and speaking the truth about what's going on such a cr critical issue at a very critical time, I just find it in, you know, incredibly you know, damning for the institution itself. You know, we need these institutions to function and, and fulfill their really important core missions. And in and, and instances like this, when, when they fail to do so, um, I think it should cause all of us to do a lot of critical examination and understand this has to be fixed. And your thoughts, should the U.S. be part of the U.N. Human Rights Council, given these realities that you're describing? When, when I served as ambassador, the U.S. was not part of the council. The current administration has rejoined the council. I I sometimes, my opinion is that um, I frequently think we get too focused on whether or not you're in the council or not the council, and less focused on what is the council accomplishing, what is, what is the goal, what is the point. And if the goal, if the point is that we're going to actually use this body in a way that will actually advocate and advance human rights, well, then that's an important body to be in. If we're lending our moral leadership and credibility to an organization that claims to speak for and address human rights but is not going to do it, then we should not be involved. So I think that's the lens we should look at it. So I've taken my view, you know, We've got an upcoming session of the Human Rights Council next month. You know, the U.S. has rejoined the council as, as a new member this year in 2022. What's going to happen? So I think it would be great to see the U.S. lead an effort to bring resolutions before the Human Rights Council examining the grotesque human rights violations happening in China today. If that happens, that, that will be a great sign that you, the U.S. rejoining the council has had, a, has had an outcome and there have been a reason to, to it. If that doesn't happen, I fear that will just lend weaken U.S. moral credibility and give greater legitimacy to a council that is clearly failing in doing its job. So, you know, this, this theme of moral courage keeps kind of recurring, I think, in everything you're talking about. Dare I say it seems kind of in short supply these days. I don't, I, do, you, do you feel we can count on a change there? Or maybe I'll ask a better question. How do we rekindle that? Because I think most people would agree it's not in terribly large supply at the moment. I agree, and I think that's the big challenge we face. And in terms of what people can do, don't watch the Olympic Games. That's not that hard. I mean, it, it may be hard for people because you want to watch the Olympics and your friends are going to talk about it. And it, it could be hard. So, like, do we in our daily lives 
find ways to, to show our own moral courage. Um, and it's, it's, it's those simple acts that I think people can do. You know, do you examine where you buy your products from? You know, what, you know, re read our report about corporate complicity. You know, look at the companies that have engaged in that, mostly technology companies. You know, contact those companies. You know, how much, you know, I'm not trying to beat up people, but how much moral courage does it take for you not to watch the Olympics or not to buy a product you know, made with forced labor from China or to tell a company, stop engaging in these terrible activities? You know, if we can't start taking those actions ourselves, we're kidding ourselves if we think our political leaders are going to take you know, much more harder actions if we can't do it. So I, I really want to encourage you know, all of us to you know, educate ourselves what's going on because you have to be educated, you have to know what's happening. Um, and then all of us can find ways in our own daily life to you know, act according to those values that we, I think we all profess to believe. You know, there's a, I'm just thinking of this shop in Milford, Pennsylvania called Better World, where they basically, every item in the shop, it's all sorts of things from coffee to, to furniture to books. None of it is sourced from any dictatorship, including, of course, including China. I like. um, so, there's, the, there's this kind of thing where you can make buying decisions, you know, and this place like this makes it easy for you. But the, the question I have is, everything you've described, okay, is for people who care or care a bit, right? But then maybe people just don't know, don't know don't, or just simply it's too far away for it to be important. So what about, what about this side of the equation? Well, I think you know, if you if you come and look at some of our resources at victimsofcommunism.org or following us on Twitter at vo communism, we've got great short videos that you can show your friends and family to help educate them about what's happening in China. Because you know, as we alluded to earlier, many people seem either apathetic or don't know or don't care. And the best and frankly only solution to that challenge is education, is giving people the information. So. When our friends talk about the Olympics, you know, the, these next couple of weeks, send them these little videos that we have here at VOC talking about what's actually happening in China today. And this is the way to you know, get people um, better educated, informed, and that's what hopefully will drive our own behavior and ultimately the kind of policy making that folks on Capitol Hill um, need to start, you know, to, need to continue doing. You know, as we finish up, I want to talk just a little bit about more about communism in the broader sense, because, you know, of course, there's a good reason why you focus on China. But, you know, you're actually broadly interested in exposing communism and, and its victims, hence the mm -hmm. name. Yes. And, and that's something, you know, Nazism had its Nuremberg trials, people. There's a clear knowledge among people in the world, mostly, that this is an evil ideology that's done unspeakable things. And communism certainly fits, you know, evil ideology, unspeakable things profile. But it's somehow it's not known. You see people in Che Guevara shirts roaming around. You see people, frankly, in like Stalin shirts and crazy things like this that I can't even believe, right? But you don't you don't see the Hitler version of that, right? Thankfully, yeah. But, but no, you're you're exactly right, and that that's what our organization exists for. We were actually chartered by Congress in 1993 to educate Americans and memorialize the more than 100 million victims of communism around the world. I mean, I hope folks let that sink in. Most Americans don't know that, that more than 100 million people were killed by communist regimes around the world. 
And unfortunately today, more than one and a half billion people still live under a communist regime. So you know, we as, as the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation do everything we can. Um, we, we educate, we have an education program, we have uh, t teacher education seminars, a curricula we help make available to schools. We do a series of educational videos, um, to, again, to try to educate people about both the crimes of communism past and present. Um, and I can share with you, uh, here in Washington, D.C., this spring, we will be opening the first ever Victims of Communism Museum here in Washington, D.C. So we're, we're very uh, much looking forward to opening our doors to our first visitors this spring, where, again, we'll be able to put the, real, the faces of the victims of communism in front of you know, American visitors and really, as I said, educate them about such an evil and destructive ideology, both in its kind of incarnation in the Soviet Union, which, which you know, dominated much of the history of the latter part of the 20th century, um, but then, of course, again today, the Chinese Communist Party. Well, Ambassador Andrew Bremberg, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. The Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights did not immediately respond to a request for comment. We live in an age of weaponized information and censorship. To be the first to know about new American Thought Leaders episodes and related content, you can sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. You can just hit the check mark on American Thought Leaders.